All right, we are going to jump uh, right in because I want to make sure that we have room for that Zoom chat at the end. It's an opportunity for us to, uh, you know, do some question and answer, for you guys to ask me some questions, for us to kind of process or dialogue about the answers together. Uh, maybe most of all, it's an opportunity to uh, see each other's faces again, to hear each other's voices, to kind of engage in that sort of uh, community, that sort of chat that we get to do. You know, if we were together, it would be at the end of church, maybe in the foyer, but uh, this is our digital version, is getting together over Zoom that way. So look forward to that. Also look forward to this uh, new series that we're getting into today. So Darren and I talked a little bit about what could make the most sense in terms of a series to walk through the next few weeks. And we thought what a great thing it could be to, uh, to focus in on the promises of God. And specifically we're going to look at the promises of God um, as found in the Old Testament, as found in God interacting with um, and, and, and coming down to and being with um, people in the midst of, of, of tough times in the Old Testament. And, and of course there are many, many different stories of God speaking truth into hard times uh, and, and, and meeting with uh, broken people in broken situations and giving hope. And so we wanted to take a look at those situations, which are, of course, in many ways much more extreme than what we find ourselves in. But those truths are still applicable. And so to take a look at those things and, uh, and to explore how we can apply those uh, in our lives and our situations today. So today we're going to start off by looking at the story of uh, Gideon. And this story takes place over a very specific time in Israel's history, and that's the time uh, uh, that's documented in the book of Judges. It's actually an especially broken time in Israel's history. Now, you might remember uh, when we went through our Ruth series, then we took a little bit of a look at the, at the book of Judges. It's a very, very brief one because the story of Ruth actually takes place right within that same time frame, right within that same sort of, um, you know, uh, several generations uh, of time, they're not sure exactly where, but somewhere in there, Ruth happened, and so they, uh, and so we looked at the last verse of the last chapter of Judges to kind of give us a picture of what the book was about, what the theme of the book was, and that verse says, and that line is actually repeated uh, several times throughout the book. It says, "In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit." So that sort of sums up uh, Judges, a pretty pessimistic summary of Judges. Uh, I posted a link in Facebook as well as with the uh, the bulletin as well. Um, there is a video from uh, the people over the Bible Project sort of summarizing the book, and they do a great job of it. If you haven't seen it yet, I encourage you after this uh, to consider going and taking a look. It's 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 quick and it's uh, it's interesting and uh, hugely educational. They do a great job of kind of summarizing uh, the main themes. Very very well done. Um, but they describe judges as cyclical. They, they have this sort of spiral imagery that they use in their video because Judges uh, repeats itself over and over again in different ways. Uh, the people turn away from God and they get taken over by uh, an outside group, the Midianites or, or another group like that. And uh, they find themselves in huge trouble and they, and they end up crying out to God and saying, God, help us. And God raises up the judge and the judge um, wins some kind of a battle or, 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 or brings Israel back to a place of prosperity and and they celebrate and they're happy uh, uh, and then and when things are good then they go back again to worshiping other gods and, and over and over again this happens and it keeps on getting more and more broken and more and more uh, corrupt and more and more um, like their neighbors they look more and more like the people around them and less and less like the people of God 
Um, and the judges follow that pattern as well. The judges become more and more corrupt and more broken and more pagan as uh, the book progresses. And so Gideon's kind of in the middle of that, a little bit towards the beginning. He's still a pretty functional guy, but he certainly has uh, his character flaws. Um, and it's a significant thing to keep in mind as we dig into this book to, to, to be thinking about um, the difference between descriptive and prescriptive, the difference between um, the choices that characters are making um, that are documented for historical purposes or, or even as a warning, and the choices that they're making that were called to emulate or that were called to that were called to follow because because Gideon was a man who was used by God, but not everything he did um, is something that were called uh, is that were called to follow and uh, or to or to try to be like. Uh, but luckily, this is not uh, a series called the Promises of People. This is a series called the Promises of God, uh, and we're looking less at Gideon. And, and more at God and how God responds to and how God interacts with and how God engages with Gideon and the questions that Gideon has. Um, but we're going to start by kind of taking a bit of a, a bird's eye view of chapter 6 where this story begins. So if you've got your Bibles with you, a turn with me to Judges chapter 6. And this is kind of where we'll be camped out for the majority of the message. The chapter begins with a reset of this cycle that we've been talking about. Israel is doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And as a result, they're being oppressed by the Midianites. And it's pretty bad. The crops are all ruined. Uh, their livestock's being killed year after year. Um, and, and, and whenever they plant food, whenever they try and do things, it all gets destroyed over and over again. And they're getting pretty des desperate. And after, I think it's uh, seven years of this, in their distress, then they cry out to God for help. And, and, uh, and they ask God... Uh, for help, and God actually ends up sending a prophet to explain things to them, saying, hey, I brought you out of Egypt, I rescued from the Egyptians, I am the Lord your God, you should not be worshipping the gods of the Amorites where you live, but you have not listened to me, and so that, the prophet says, is why you find yourself in the situation that you're in. And from that prophet's message, we jump right into the story of Gideon, and we get one of the most ridiculous introductions to a, a, a biblical hero, I think, uh, in the entire uh, Bible. Uh, the author really sets the stage for us. He sets it up. This angel of the Lord uh, shows up on Gideon's land, or on Gideon's father's land, I guess, technically, and, and, and walks over to near where Gideon is and sits down uh, under this tree and, I guess, just watches for a while. Because what Gideon is doing is he's harvesting. He's threshing wheat. Uh, but because he's so scared of these Midianites, uh, because he's a bit of a coward, uh, and apparently because he doesn't have much situational awareness, because because uh, he doesn't notice this angel show up, uh, he uh, thinks figures that it's best to uh, thresh his wheat in a wine press, which were these big holes in the ground. They were several feet deep. They were built to crush grapes. So he's in this wine press, hiding away, kind of threshing his wheat. Uh, so right off the bat, our, our, our first impression of Gideon is that is that he's cowardly um, and that he's a little bit clueless. It's kind of a ridiculous scene. And, and I can just imagine this angel showing up to meet the one that God has chosen as this new judge and arriving or appearing there and, and sort of seeing this hole with sort of bits of chaff flying out of this hole in the ground and, and, and maybe smirking or <laughs> maybe sighing and going, uh, I'm just going to sit down here by this tree and watch how this one plays out. And the sort of the ridiculousness of this is only enhanced uh, by the way that the angel addresses Gideon. The, the, the first words out of the angel's mouth when Gideon finally notices this angel, when he finally pokes his head out of his wine press, is, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. 
<laughs> mighty warrior Gideon. And and things our, our impression of Gideon doesn't actually get much better from there. Um, we see uh, in the questions and the concerns that Gideon raises over time and the way that he dialogues with his angel and the way that he dialogues with God, uh, that he's a little bit insecure as well. He, he, he second guesses God constantly, including the most well-known example, uh, which is which is the bringing uh, of the fleece and the, the this sort of test that he gives God, which is one of those kind of prescriptive or descriptive things. Um, I feel like I was taught, maybe you were too, that this was something to emulate, that, 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 that the fleece was something that we could uh, that we could do that was a good thing to do um, and and that may be true but when I read it here uh, it feels more like what it's trying to do is it's trying to highlight uh, how insecure Gideon is um, his sort of emotional weakness in this case or the brokenness of the lack of trust that he has for God but what I want to do is uh, in the time that we have left is take uh, time to look at God's promises to look at the interaction between God and Gideon and to pick out a few of the key sort of questions that Gideon has and the answers that God gives that I think have a ton to say to us today. So we're going to go through these pretty quickly and then I hope what will happen is that you'll join us right after for this message, um, right after the message to talk a bit on soon, a little bit more about these promises to dig into these things together. Uh, but what's amazing to me as we, as we uh, go through this is how relatable Gideon is um, he's you know imperfect and he's uncertain and he's insecure uh, just like we all are from time to time so the way that he engages with God and the questions that he asks um, are questions that all of us ask at one time or another and and maybe especially in times like these where things are a little bit um, you know off the rails in some ways where things feel a little bit uncertain or a little bit uh, uh, not secure or or a little bit unknown um, these are questions that come into our heads into our hearts and, and the story becomes really, really practical for us when we look at the, the gracious way that God responds to Gideon in the midst of Gideon's weakness. And, and we, can, we can grab onto that for ourselves as well, recognizing that we have a gracious God, a God who loves us, who engages with us uh, where we're at. Um, and, 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 and when we see here how God uses Gideon in the midst of his weakness, we see that we can also be used by God no matter, uh, no matter where we're at or how we're feeling. So... Let's walk through some of these promises together. I've got five of them here. The first one is this. Uh, in verse 13, Gideon uh, sort of immediately counters or, or says to God, I'm too unskilled. I'm not, I'm not good enough for this. And, and God says uh, to go on the strength that you have. That's the promise that uh, Gideon, or that God gives Gideon. So, so this is the passage I would say that really got me uh, initially excited about this message. It's usually something that I grab onto early, and this is what it was for me. I think it speaks incredibly powerfully to where many of us are at. Uh, Gideon says to the angel in verse 13, he says, pardon me, my Lord. He's, he's saying, excuse me, um, but if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. So Gideon's asking, where is God in the middle of this? Why doesn't he show up like we expect him to? Why do these things happen? Why, why is there this brokenness around us? Why does it feel in the middle of this like God has abandoned us? And, and the response God gives is incredible. It just blows through all of Gideon's protesting. 
It's true, I think, that Gideon will have already known the practical answers to those questions in his heart. God hadn't turned away from his people. The people had turned away from God. Uh, Gideon himself had turned away from God and was worshipping other idols. Uh, but God doesn't actually even address that. God doesn't scold. God doesn't lace into Gideon like he would have had every right or ability to. What God does instead is he simply says, Go in the strength that you do have. Just go. You have the strength. Am I not sending you? Says God. So let's take that to heart. Things have changed. Things are going to look different for a while. Uh, and they're going to be uncomfortable in different ways for a while. And they're going to feel weird. And, and the way that we love, we talked about this last week, the way that we love is going to look different over this time. And for some of you, for all of us in one way or another, uh, it's going to be stretching. We're going to feel under-equipped. But when we think of how to be the church in this context, God says, don't worry too much about being perfect or ready. Go in the strength you have. I'm sending you. You are enough. You have this. You have enough. This is what I made you for. Um, the church, and I'm not talking about sort of the abstract, big, universal church we talk about our church, us, you and, and me and uh, the couple hundred members that make up Pleasant Valley. We are built. We are called. Our purpose is to be salt and light in this time. Uh, and it's easy to get focused in on what we can't do right now. We can't meet together in a church building right now. We can't run the programs that we're used to running in the same way that we've run them before. Uh, there's a lot of things that we can't do. But God says to us, I believe in the same way that he says to Gideon, go in the strength that you do have. You have enough. This is enough. And I'm sending you, God says. And so we go. That's the first promise. The second one is this. Um, Gideon says, I'm not special. In verse 15, and God says, doesn't matter. I will be with you. So this is, in many ways, a, a, a reaffirmation or a reinforcement of that first promise. Gideon says, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And God says, I will be with you. Gideon claims he's not special. He's too lowly. He doesn't have the status to lead something like this. Go talk to someone else. Go um, make this somebody else's story. I'm not the one that this should be about. And God says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're at the top or the bottom of the food chain, it doesn't matter who you think you are, or what you think you're capable of. I am with you, God says, and that is what qualifies you, nothing else. When we feel this way, the way that Gideon did, which I'm sure many of us do, this sort of sense of, what can I even do here? What, what difference can I possibly make? What impact could I have? What impact will my choices have? Uh, God says here, uh, just like he tells through the story of Ruth, just like we've been walking through Ruth with, um, there are no small choices. There are no small stories because I, God, am here in the midst of it, working through it, using this to work things together for the good of those who love me. God says, I will be with you. That's promise number two. Promise number three. Gideon in verse 18 uh, is worried that God's going to take off on him. He thinks he's too slow or he's not, uh, he's not ready enough. And God says, I will be patient. So Gideon gets caught uh, in an embarrassing situation. Uh, he's th threshing wheat in this wine press. 
you know, with statues, altars to other gods uh, over the shoulder in a different part of the yard with, with an angel of the Lord standing in front of him. And, and he recognizes, uh, maybe unsurprisingly, that he's got some changes he needs to make. He's got some prep to do. And as he runs off to do what's been asked of him, to do what's required of him, he gets worried. He says, don't leave me behind. Don't uh, go on without me. I'm, I'm not ready yet. I've got to get things in order. And God says, I will wait. I will wait until you return. I will be patient. And that's uh, an incredible promise for us. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and he's rich in love. I look at this story and I feel like if I were God, and, and, and thank God I'm not, but, but in this situation I would already be so done with Gideon. I show up, he's cowering in a wine press. The first thing he does is criticize me for not being more active. And then I explain that I'm planning to work through him, that I've already equipped him. And then he starts complaining that, oh, but I'm not in the right family. And I say, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be with you. And now he immediately begins to second guess me again. As soon as I leave, you'll take off, right? And this isn't the last time. A chapter later, Gideon will say again, I'm not really sure about this. Can you confirm one more time? Here's a test I've created for you. God, here's a way that I'm going to test the creator of the universe uh, to make sure that I can really believe him, that I can really trust him, that he's really good uh, for what he says. Um, even after he's shown up in my yard and spoken to me, I'm going to create this test for him. And then, again, after that, sorry God, if you don't mind, just one more time, could you please bend the laws of nature for me just once more? And and as if I'm thinking about what God must have been feeling, and of course, um, I don't know what God was feeling, or I don't, I don't, I know God wasn't feeling how I would feel in that situation, but I can only imagine the sort of, <laughs> the sort of anger that would be boiling up inside of me, and yet that is not how God responds, and that is not how God uh, looks. God has unbelievable patience and grace. He accommodates Gideon. More than that, he spoils Gideon. He gives Gideon chance after chance. He accommodates Gideon's needy, needy requests. And, and that's such a beautiful, beautiful promise for us as we struggle with this, as we are slow, as we doubt, as we wonder, as we question, uh, even as we make demands of God. Um, God waits with us. He sits with us. It's not going anywhere. God says he promises to us like he does with Gideon. I'll be there when you return. It's amazing words of comfort. The fourth promise is this. Gideon in verse 22 He's saying, I'm afraid. I'm too afraid. And God says, I bring you peace. We talked last week about the nature of God and what God has given us. Not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. And here, when Gideon is afraid, and afraid, in fact, because of his own sin, his own uh, brokenness. It's not the Midianites in this case that he's afraid of. It's when it finally clicks in that he's talking with an angel, that he's talking with a messenger of God. He fears for his own life. But when Gideon is fearful, he cries out to God in his fear. And God responds. And the first word out of God's mouth in verse 23 is peace. Peace. Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. When, when we have fear in our hearts, and that fear can be from a number of sources, fear about what's going on in the world, fear about our own relationship with God, fear about whether we're good enough, whether we're strong enough, whether we can get through this, uh, fear about whether we can make it through, you know, a tough season. Um, when we feel, as, as all of us do sometimes, that it's too much, that we're overwhelmed, God says to us, 
peace, peace. Do not be afraid. You're not going to die. God promises that when we are weak and when we are scared and when we are overwhelmed by responsibility, by expectations on us, by the world around us, when we have fear, God says peace. He promises supernatural peace over all things. That's the fourth promise that we see here. Uh, the fifth and final promise is this. Gideon is feeling that the odds are against him and God says, I will save you. In chapter 7, uh, God goes through this exercise with Gideon. Uh, I think we're probably all pretty familiar with it. It's, it's maybe one of the most famous parts of this story. It's the, it's the process of whittling down the army, first from over 30,000 and then to 10,000 and then down to 300. And, and side note, it's a little bit crazy to me. Sometimes I get caught up in the numbers of the story, excuse me, that there were that there were 10,000 people, that's the population of Winkler, and he had to get them all down to go drinking from this river and to go through every single one of these people and to find the 300 that were drinking in the right way. It would have been quite the task. Uh, but that is a total digression from what we're talking about. It has nothing to do with the point that I'm about to make. Uh, the point is this. As this is happening, uh, because we're already familiar with Gideon's character, I, I think we can already feel him uh, uh, clenching up a bit. We can already feel the questions beginning to rise. God, what are you doing? I can't see how we're possibly going to win this thing. You're making it impossible. We're all going to die here. And, and God, of course, knows Gideon too. And before Gideon even asks the question, in chapter 7, verse 5, it says, The Lord said to Gideon, With those 300 men, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let the others go home. So in this season, we've had to give up on a lot of what's important to us. Some of it is superficial. doesn't mean it doesn't sting a little bit. I have a, a, a calendar that I put on my phone that I really need to uninstall um, that pings me whenever a scheduled Jets game is on. And it hurts a little bit every time. And, uh, and of course, there are, are many more serious things that we've given up. Uh, many serious things hanging about. Some of us have had our jobs taken away or changed. Some of us have had freedom taken away in more extreme ways as we're uh, in quarantine or isolation. Um, no matter who we are, our schedules have probably been turned upside down. Our kids and teens and post-secondary students or you uh, watching are, are, are in kind of uh, a state of confusion about what's happening with school and, um, and how classes are working and those sorts of things. There's so much unknown and uncertainty and there's so much that we've had to give up in terms of scheduling um, you know we've had to pare our lives down over and over again less and less and less every time it feels like every few days another thing is kind of taken away and maybe it feels a little bit like Gideon felt watching that army dwindle down watching these important things get sent away watching God go actually that's not it that's not important that's not what you need in life and these things are leaving and what does that leave us with? In the end, what God says is it leaves us with what he needs to get the job done. It leaves us with our 300 men, with a fraction of what we had before. And yet God says, with this, with the strength that you do have, with the faith that you do have, this is enough. I will save you. I will use this situation, this place, this family, this moment to show my power so in conclusion uh, I want to say this uh, Paul 
when he writes to the Corinthian church, uh, speaks about weakness a lot. Um, that church had uh, some problems with ego. They were a bit puffed up. There were disagreements about who was in charge, about which group had the most authority, about who had things right. Uh, there was a lot of tension in the group. And, and so he speaks a lot about God working through weakness. And he has amazing passages in both first, in both first and second Corinthians uh, that sum up um, this ultimate sense of how God can work through weak people and how God can work through imperfect situations and how, in fact, those situations are the best things that we have to show the power of God in our lives. So this is what I'm going to close with. I'm going to read first from 1 Corinthians 1, um, uh, verses 26 to 29, and then from 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 to 10. These words of Paul speaking about uh, how God is made perfect in our weakness. This is what it says. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that were not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And now the second Corinthians. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We can say to God, or we can feel that we're too unskilled, and God says, go on the strength that you have. We can feel that we're not special, we're not equipped, we're not enough, and God says, I will be with you. We can feel that we've got doubts, that we're too slow, that we're second-guessing, and God says, I'll be patient. I'll be patient with you. We can feel fear in our hearts, and God says, I bring you peace. We can feel like the odds are stacked up against us. We can feel like things that we love have been taken from us, that we're living a life where we don't have what we need to get through, and God says, I will save you. So those are the promises from God to Gideon that I think speak beautifully into our time and situation here as well. Go in peace. Hopefully see you in Zoom.